and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Antonius Smith, and I'm excited to welcome Hasantika Sirisena to the show. Hasantika Sirisena, she, they, is a writer, graphical artist, and cartoonist, as well as a member of faculty and professor at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Today, we'll be discussing Hasantika's non-fictional collection debut, Dark Tourist Essays. She is also the author of a collection of short stories titled The Other One. This rendition of Book Talk was conducted by guest interviewer David Mason. Welcome, Hasantika Sirisena, and I'm hoping that I'm getting your name right. Um, you're you the are. author of- Thank you. Yeah, I, I won't get fired, at least for this particular uh, round of interviews. You're the author of Dark Tourist, which is a collection of essays on a lot of different topics, but sort of revolving around a few central topics. And I'm really curious about your identity as a person. All the essays seem to touch on some element of your identity. Maybe if this isn't just too broad and, and general a question, maybe you could start out by telling me and everybody else Who's the author of this book, anyway? I think that's such a fantastic question. I first want to thank you, Dave, for your kind words about the book, and I appreciate um, this opportunity to talk to you. I um, I think that's a great question about identity. I I think there isn't an easy answer, and I think a lot of the book really has to do with the ways in which identity is a slippery sort of is is, is sort of something very slippery to kind of hold, get a hold of. It's not easy to say that I'm one thing or another. My family immigrated here to the United States from Sri Lanka, but we came here when I was quite young. And so while I really love the country and I identify as a Sri Lankan American, uh, I don't, for example, I didn't live the civil war and I talk about that in the book. And that, you know, I think that impacts my ability to say, oh, I'm Sri Lankan. Um, I also, you know, identify as, uh, bisexual, for example, and bisexuality has always been an identity that has been, I think, both accepted in the LGBTQ plus community, but also I, I think bisexuality hasn't always been accepted um, broadly in the mainstream society and also in the LGBTQ community. And in fact, tourists or that, that slang term tourist is often used for bisexual. So, you know, coming to terms with that was something that was really a long process for me, several decades. And then also, you know, even coming to terms, I talk about this about disability. So much, so much of our culture really asks us to sort of accept pain and accept um, discomfort and not reveal that, that it even took me, as strange as it sounds, a long time to admit that my eye was painful to me. So I think maybe when I say this idea of identity being slippery, I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way or a criticism of myself, but a sense of the ways in which identity is not always something that we can access, either because we don't have the language or maybe because we don't feel we have um, a right to. And I very, I very much navigated that my whole life and tried to navigate that in um, the collection Dark Tourist. So, so in response to the question, who is the author? It sounds to me like you're kind of saying you don't know. And maybe that's the nature of identity. I, I do know in the sense that I know that I'm an intersection of identities. You know, I know that I'm Hasantika Sirisena and that I'm, I work in, I live in central Pennsylvania and I work as a teacher. I know all these things, you know, I show up for my job, but uh, I, I also think that so much of what these other sort of intersections of identity, uh, like ethnicity, like um, sexuality, they've really been forming, we've been forming our language. And in fact, 
when I teach, I talk about this a lot about acquiring a sort of sense of identity. And I think that has been a long process and that has been, a, that I've been worked hard to try to find myself. And so, yes, I do, I both simultaneously, if it's possible, know exactly who I am and am always learning something new about myself. So yes, yes. So, so maybe we can learn some new things about you too. You, you touched just now on, on what we might say is your professional identity right now, where you are in Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, what is your professional identity? What, what do you do besides write great essays? I am actually a professor of creative writing in English. I teach at Susquehanna University and also for the Vermont College of Fine Arts. And that's a big part of my identity actually is teaching. And I think it's an important part of my identity because um, many of the essays actually came about from, even if I don't mention it in the essay itself, from situations that I encountered as a teacher of trying to figure out, you know, I think as a teacher, you really end up having to deal with your identity because you have to you have to be in front of a classroom and you have to speak to students who are, you know, if it's hard for me, I'm a good, you know, a few decades older than my students. My students are often struggling and I want to be able, if I can't give them answers, I do want to be able to give them some sort of, you know, sense of a path or road signs or, you know, uh, and so, I think in that sense, teaching is, is something that has helped me to actually work on this collection. I think this collection really is in many ways a response to my, um, my work as a professor and as a teacher of writing. Oh, that's interesting. Um, especially because the, the book makes it clear that, um, that, that you've arrived at this particular moment in your professional life kind of circuitously. Am I right about that? How did you come to what you're doing now? And and how many professional identities have you had? Uh, that's a great question. I actually worked for a, a, a long time as a, a grants writer for art museums. And in fact, I think I referenced that in one of the essays. Uh, and then I started teaching. Um, I actually started teaching in 2006. And so I've been teaching for a while. Um, I've, I've when you When you work as a teacher and writing, you end up working in a lot of different uh, places. And so, especially living in New York, I did um, a lot of adjuncting as a professor, but you know, it's been a great journey. And I, you know, every time I teach, I actually learn something new myself. And I don't think I would be the writer that I am today without having taught. And in fact, um, you know, I also talk about the Beatles and I know that the Beatles, they were great session musicians and they actually, I, you know, I think they, they were, they were, they worked in Berlin, right? I don't remember, you know, you can correct me for a long time as session musicians and that's how they, how they sort of perfected their music. And so I kind of think of teaching as, you know, teaching writing as that, that the kind of analogous practice for writers, but I learned a lot teaching. So um, certainly, yeah. Yeah. I've been fishing for um, for something else about your professional life, and, and maybe it's just not part of your professional life. So so you're not you're not biting the hook. So let me let me try to be a little bit more explicit about what I'm interested in here. One one of the one of the so-called essays in your book, I put that in quotes because it consists of your drawings rather oh, than a bunch of prose. So what's what's your what's your art background? I uh, I do have a graphic essay, and thank you for mentioning that. Uh, I have a graphic essay in my collection and I actually trained as a visual artist. I um, started drawing when I was around seven or eight and I started taking classes and 
um, really dedicating myself to visual art when I was probably around the same age, around eight or nine. And I received a, a very good education in the visual arts. I went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which I mentioned in the collection. And so that was my first art form. And, uh, but then I actually ended up giving it up for various reasons that I go into in the collection and I returned to it maybe about four years ago. And so the graphic um, essay in there is a, is a sort of response to my kind of returning and finding a love again of drawing. I had felt that I was too hard on myself as, and I think this is quite common in the art. Somebody does one art and then they sort of end up giving up on it early in, in, their, um, in their life. And in fact, William Cantridge, who I write about, he actually in his early 20s began acting and then realized he wasn't gonna get very far as an actor and then returned to drawing. So in my case, I did something similar, just took me longer, but um, it's been fantastic to return to drawing because I came back to it. Um, one of the, you know, there's a Bob Dylan line, I was older then, I'm younger than that now. And so I, uh, I feel like that's how I've come to drawing. This is one of the great things I think of aging is that you become you begin to lose some of the the barriers to success. You begin to think, okay, you know, I I, I want to just try this again and see if I can find the love of it. And so that's what happened with drawing. About four years ago, I thought, why did I give up on it? And so I started drawing again, and I we found the love. So it's kind of a it's kind of a love story in in reverse. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> It certainly does, and 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 by the way, uh, as much as I like your prose, I like your drawings as well. Thank um, you. Not that I'm trained in that particular art, but but they're they're really um, the, your your drawings are quite captivating, and, and and there there's a part of chapter ten or something um, where you you suggest I think maybe you do it more than once. You had to relearn how to draw. Yeah. Am I remembering that correctly from the book? And if if so, why did you have to relearn it? And second of all, how do you go about doing that? I did have to relearn. One of the things that made me very happy, though, is that, you know, a lot of drawing, at least the type of drawing that I did, which was, I did, I had a very sort of pretty traditional training in drawing. I'm not even sure they do this kind of drawing pedagogy anymore, but, you know, I had to learn perspective and proportion and all those things. And I actually found that I had, it was like muscle memory, that, that kind of thing I could easily return to. And I had still had a sense of proportion and a sense of, of composition. And that made me very happy that, that I hadn't lost that training. But it's like anything that you, you know, if, if you start, if you were a runner and then you don't run for 20 years and then you start running again, you're going to have to retrain the muscles. And it's something like that for me. Um, the good news is that made me very happy is that it took me a lot less time to retrain than it took me to actually learn it. So I, I have good news for all anyone who's returning to something that they loved after many, many years of not doing it is that you, you, you can actually pick up the skill. And it's been an amazing process for me, even from that graphic essay, which was fairly early on. I've just been very happy. I've been doing more and more graphic essays and I've been very, very happy with how I've been able to, re, to really pick things up again. That term that you're using is maybe unfamiliar to a lot of people. The, the way that you say graphic essay, that, that may be um, a new concept for some. I, I, I found it enchanting, um, a, a, a really remarkable way to approach the matter of communicating, where you think, oh, you just write a sentence and that communicates. 
in this case, uh, the, the pictures really do communicate something maybe that pros can't communicate. But I, I'm wondering if you've got additional ambitions for your drawing. What, what are you drawing next? I do. I'm actually working on, I'm actually working on a graphic memoir. It's a memoir slash um, work of literary journalism. And I don't want to reveal too much about it because it's still in the very early stages. It's a success story in the sense, my, my return to drawing. I've been having some success with doing the graphic work, even though it's hard. And, um, you know, it, it takes me a long time to do one of those drawings, actually. Uh, just so that, you know, one of the drawings in the book, they're, they're so intricate that they took me, I think one, I think at least one of those drawings took me at least eight or 12 hours. And I was joking with a friend of mine, I could write a paragraph in, you know, 12 minutes. So why am I, why am I doing these drawings? But the, but the, the, the good news is I'm getting faster and I'm getting, I'm, I'm loving it so much. I'm actually, um, I'm hoping to be able to uh, be able to put together as my next pro uh, product uh, project. A graphic memoir. So yes. Well, I'm already looking forward to that now. Um, but you, so part of the reason to spend eight or ten hours on a on a single drawing is is because you find it personally satisfying, the activity itself. Yes, and it goes back to what you were saying, Dave. About I I do think that there are things that I you know the way that I think of graphic essays are you know really they come under comics and I just want to acknowledge that because. I think it's really important that comics don't get enough of due, I think, in our culture, even though there's a resurgence and, and a sort of love for them. But comics are often thought of as sort of lesser. And so I want to say this all comics. And I'm, one of the things I love about comics, and actually, when I was younger, when I was in my teens, I used to love reading comics. Like I think many immigrant children, I could really connect with, with comics. And so, um, I think that what I love about doing the drawings and doing and working with images that are paired with the text is that the images can add a dimension to the text that the text alone doesn't carry. So I very I really enjoyed that putting that together. Yeah. I feel like I have to mention there's a, there's another essay that it has a really unique character in this collection and that is, and it consists of just a list of I don't All know right. I mean, five hundred things. It's just the <laughs> list. <laughs> So first, I'm, I'm really curious uh, why you would approach an essay this way. But I've got a follow-up question. I'll, I'll let you talk to this first question first. The essay really has to do with queerness. And the, the name of the essay is The Answer Key. And it's essentially, you're right, it's a list essay in that it's 500 answers to a, to a quiz or a puzzle that you never actually get to see. And so, uh, and so you only get the answers, you don't see the puzzle or the quiz itself. This, this is actually a form of an essay. It's called a hermit crab essay, which I love. I love that. I just want, I get, I'm glad to get the chance to say this hermit crab essay. And you, as you know, a hermit crab is a animal that uh, it takes the shell of another animal. And so um, hermit crab, essays uh, are essays that take the shell or the form of another, uh, like, like, you know, for example, there's another essay in my collection called Ambiopia, a medical history. And it, it's much, you know, it's, it's, it's much more amorphous, but it's actually a medical history. Um, it's my medical history and John, medic, uh, John Milton's 
medical history combined. And so it's a way, it's sort of like a, a sort of a, a way to kind of play with form. So the answer key, I had wanted to do two things. One is that I had wanted to write about queerness. And the other thing is I wanted to write an essay that decentered myself. The one of the things that I found hard about essays and why it actually took me a long time to come around to writing essays was that I often feel either nervous about writing about myself or I feel, oh, should I really reveal this about myself? Or uh, I, I often felt like I didn't have anything interesting to say about myself. And so I really wanted one essay in the collection to not really be about me and to really be a celebration of queer history and also an exploration of um, queer identity and then also have nothing to do with me. That was, the, that was why I chose a hermit crab form of the answer key. And I actually invite people to make their own quiz or puzzle that would go along with the answer key. And did your, here's my follow-up question. Did the, did the publisher raise its eyebrows over this approach to a collection of essays, either the drawings or this list or, or any of the other interesting approaches you have to prose? Did, did you have a publisher on the other side of the desk going, uh, I don't think we really want to do this. No, um, Mad Creek Books and Ohio State University Press were fantastic. Um, thank you for giving me a chance to plug the 21st Century Essay Series, which is the series that this book is part of. They're amazing. They, it's Kristen Elias Rowley, Patrick Madden, and David Lazar, and they really invite experimental work. And so I had, not only did I, did they not at all give me any pushback against any of the essays, and you're right, some of them are quite odd. They actually really welcomed it. And um, actually, Kristen with the answer key really helped me. I had a longer essay and she she told me, oh, no, cut the first half of this. All you need is the answer key. And when I did that, I thought, oh, yes, that's right. So not only that, but they but they helped me to realize some of the essays. So uh, that was that's been an extraordinary process. And I think one of the really great parts of publishing with a um, university press or an independent press is that they are really interested in the future of the essay and doing formally interesting things with the essay. Mm. Yeah. So your publisher was actually encouraging this, uh, what could be seen as avant-garde approach to just writing a simple essay. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely, yes. Oh, good. So all these essays taken together, um, as we've touched on already, speak to your sense of self and your identity but some of your essays spend quite a lot of time dwelling on your father. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering where that interface is. What, what's the significance of your father to how you experience yourself? Yes, I, I do think, I think that for, like, a good portion of the first half of the book is, is about my father. I think I even referenced my father throughout the second part. I, you know, my father, I still think that my father's journey to America was extraordinary. And one of the things I talk about in the opening essay, uh, Broken Arrow, is how he made the decision to come to America in that he had never uh, he had never visited. He wasn't in school here, he was in school in England. And he knew that he didn't want to return to Sri Lanka. And for very, for very complicated reasons, he took the job in North Carolina at Cherry Hospital without knowing where he was going. And I talk about this in the essay, 
he had never seen North Carolina. He'd never, he didn't know very much about the South and he knew the fundamentals of the civil rights movement, of course, but I don't think he knew what the South was like, would be like really when he, before he made the decision to, um, to immigrate. And I actually think of him both as extraordinarily brave. I, I don't know that I could have been so courageous as to move my family to this place that I'd never been. And then to actually end up staying there. I don't think this is in the essay, but he told me one time that he was, I mean, we, he arrived in the United States when he was in his late thirties. And he told me that he, he remembered the exact moment that he saw a police officer, he saw two sheriff uh, deputies, they were bringing in a patient to Cherry Hospital and they were carrying guns in their holster. And this was the first time in his life that he'd ever seen police officers carrying guns, which really blows my mind actually. <laughs> I think I've never not seen police officers carrying guns. And so- right, In uh, the United States, we can hardly imagine that that's a thing. How, how can I, police operate without weapons? I know, right? And so, but this is like, he remembers, he remembers the first time he saw this and he said, oh, I, this was a moment where I thought, I don't know what I'm doing in America. I want to leave, but he didn't and he stayed. And, you know, and there's another essay about how he, he uh, secretly married somebody after um, my mother passed away. I, I think a lot of my life has been sort of reckoning with his choices and both feeling a great deal of admiration and some real amount of confusion and sadness about some of his choices. And, you know, I, I really adore my mother and there's an essay about my mother as well, but I think a lot of my adult life has been about um, really understanding the ways that my father, both his tenacity and his, his courage has really given me the ability to actually become a writer. I don't think I would have been brave enough to become, you know, do this very, you know, this is a, um, you know, writing is something that you get a lot of rejection and you face a lot of, I think, you know, adversity. And I think seeing my father and my father's life here gave me the courage and the, re the recognition that to kind of just stick with something. So I both really admire him and really angry about some of the things he's done. So uh, maybe not so much anymore, but certainly at the time that I was writing at least one of the essays. So, yes. And, and do you feel that, that that complex relationship that you have with your father adds up to some part of this slippery identity of yours? I think so. I think that, you know, saying that I'm Sri Lankan or saying that, that I identify as queer, those are broad categories and in some ways you can kind of maybe choose certain aspects of it to, to incorporate in your life and to amplify, but you don't choose your parents. And in many ways, they're the ones that really end up forming you, right? Um, uh, and so I think one of the things though that was really important for me in writing the collection is that I think a lot of the collection has to do with trying to reckon with the political and cultural forces that made my parents and made the situation that I grew up in that you know um, impacted Sri Lankan politics and, and therefore ended up shaping me. I think in America, one of the things that we really admire and try to, you know, and we, we love to say that we create ourselves, but I'm not entirely sure that we do. I think it's maybe 50% us and then 50% other things, our parents 
among them, but also the larger culture and the history. So, and if it, to the extent that that's true, then Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka itself plays some part in the construction of you as a person. Oh yes, yes. Even if you did leave when you were young, when exactly did you leave, and what is your relationship these days with Sri Lanka? So I left. We. My father actually left shortly after I was born. And so uh, my mother, uh, we immigrated to England first. I was a year old. And then we came to America when I was five. And so in many ways, uh, I joke with my friends, more than maybe Sri Lanka, England actually really impacted my background as well. I don't think I really addressed that very much in the, in the collection, but Sri Lanka is definitely you know, my parents are Sri Lankan. I traveled a lot to Sri Lanka as a child. I, you know, I grew up with Sri Lankan culture and Sri Lankan food. We had, we became a part of a Sri Lankan community in America. And so that really formed me. But I also, I think one of the great things about this, about writing this collection is I got to be really honest and forthright with myself about the ways in which um, Sri Lanka both is very much part of my life and part of my identity and also not. And, um, and I, you know, I think the essays that deal with Sri Lanka in the collection really are about being an outsider in Sri Lanka, um, even as I'm trying to understand the culture and to learn more. You know, to answer your second part of your question, I have not returned to Sri Lanka in the last uh, five years. And that's basically because of my teaching schedule you know, my writing schedule. I have also been worried about a lot of the politics and some of what's been going on there. And I, I, I don't wanna say more than that. And, and also, I think very honestly, and this is something that maybe I'll write about in the future. Many of the connections that I have there, this older generation of Sri Lankans, my parents included, are passing away. And I hope that's, that's not too weird or morbid, but one of the things that maybe, you know, some of, your listeners will be able to identify with this. One of the things they don't really prepare for you for as an immigrant is losing this generation of family in, a, in your home country. And it's like losing a country in some way. I definitely feel that with my parents. You know, these are these were my connections to the place. And, and that's been something very sad and sorrowful for me. Hmm. Is your, as far as national identities go, is, is your... U.S. identity different? Do you have a different relationship with the United States? I mean, I think I'm. I think I'm. A, I'm American, and I definitely identify as a Sri Lankan American. But I think that I, I can be identified as American anywhere that I go. I think my worldview is very American in so many ways. You know. You know. I even I sound American, and so I, I think it's one of those things where there'll always be a part of me that it is um, Sri Lankan and sees the world in the way that a Sri Lankan might. But I definitely feel the older I get, that part of me, sometimes I worry it's, it's fading a little bit and I have to work harder to keep up with it. Yeah. There's, a, there's an essay in the book that's titled Pretty Girl Murdered. And, and in that essay, um, you talk about the sari as, yeah. as a transformative garment. Um, yeah. What, what did the sari do to you or for you? I, you know, that's so great. That's such a great question. The sari is that long piece of fabric that you see is really quite traditional for South Asian uh, women to wear. And it's actually 
uh, I think some people may not realize this, but it's just one long fat piece of fabric that you end up um, learning to wrap. So this is part of being a South Asian woman at a certain age, you learn to wrap the sari, you have to pleat part of it, tuck that in, and then you have another part that long, um, a part that sort of hangs free, that isn't pleated, that goes over your shoulder. It's a very complicated process because as you can imagine, you're dealing with one piece of fabric, you have to sort of learn to pleat that perfectly, right? You're judged on your pleats. And then you, um, you know, you have to be able to put that all together into one, one complete garment that won't fall. And I talk about this in Pretty Girl Murdered, where a sign of your maturity is that you can pleat this sorry, fold it, tuck it in and not have it fall apart, which is something I still can't do. And so I still have to use bobby pins to hold everything. Hasantika Sirasena is the author of Dark Tourist Essays, which is published by Mad Creek Books. I'm Antonius Smith. Our guest interviewer was David Mason, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.